Hello and good afternoon. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dante Griffin. I am a member of the preaching team here at Revolution. And this is my first official time preaching or teaching in about 20 years. I used to do it. It's, I got out of the habit. And so I pray for your patience as I try to get back into the, into the saddle here. I will caution you, as some people here can attest, that when it comes to scripture and teaching it, I'm not afraid to not only walk on thin ice, but to actually break the ice, jump in the water, and since I can't swim, both drown and freeze to death. So we're gonna see how this goes. Um, today, we are concluding our series on more stories we tell with one of the most popular stories in the entire Bible and it is the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Now this story is, as I said, is one of the most popular and quoted stories throughout the history of the church. And yet many in the church are unaware that there's a big controversy surrounding the passage. And so we're gonna take a look at that today and see hopefully what God's spirit wants to tell us to, to see and, and to speak to us today. So what exactly is this controversy? Well. It involves one of the most serious questions you can have about a scripture passage. And in fact, there are two questions we need to address. The first is, is the passage canonical? I hope I pronounced that right. And second, is the passage authentic? Now, what do I mean by these two words, canonical and authentic? Well, for authentic, that's simple. Is the passage genuine? Did this event actually happen? The canonical question is a bit more thorny. In this context, we define canonical as included in the list of sacred books officially accepted as genuine. To put it in a more just bluntly, should this story just that we find in John 8, 1 through 11, should it be considered scripture? Should it be a part of the Gospel of John and should it be part of scripture as a whole? Um, if you have a Bible handy, the the passage we're going to look at is on your handout, but if you actually have a physical Bible, then there's some in the pew. Open it up to John chapter 8. I'll give you a second to do that. Um, I believe the, the, the Bibles in the, in the pews are the New International Version, and that's fine. Um, if you have, one of the, have a Bible on you, Translations like, modern translations like the New International Version, if you look at John 8, 1 through 11, you'll see something most interesting. The passage is sort of blocked off from the rest of the text. It may be in italicized, it may be in brackets, uh, maybe lines above and below it, but it's basically separated in some way from the text. And there's probably a footnote or a sentence or a statement that says something along these lines. This passage does not exist in the earliest manuscripts. Now, if you're using an older translations like the King James, or if you're using a modern paraphrase like the New Living Translation, you actually won't see this. So in some translations, you'll see where it says this passage is not in the original manuscripts or the earliest manuscripts, and some that just go on like there's nothing, nothing happened. So what's happening here? Let me indulge me for a moment. I talk about biblical translations. Maybe a bit boring, but give me a second here. 
One of the key principles in biblical translation is that since we don't have the earliest manuscripts on which scripture was recorded, that you translate from the oldest ones you do have. So in the case of the Old Testament, you translate from the earliest Hebrew manuscripts that you have available, and from the New Testament, you translate from the earliest Greek manuscripts. So if a translation like the King James, which was, which was created or written down in 1611, the Greek translation that was used for, that, for the New Testament and the King James was done by the scholar Erasmus in 1516. And what he did was he used the earliest manuscripts he had available. He had about five or six of them. And those manuscripts were dated from the 12th century. So he used what he had available to actually translate the, the New Testament from Greek into English, and, and that's how it came into the King James Version. Now, modern translations, such as the New International Version, use a variety of manuscripts, something like 30 or more. I hope I got that number right. Um, and, but many of these manuscripts are dated from as early as the third century, and here comes our problem. The manuscript that Erasmus used for like the King James has John chapter 8, 1 through 11 in it. But the earliest manuscripts, the ones that come from the third century, do not have this passage in them at all. It's, it's not there at all. It actually only starts appearing in manuscripts starting around the eighth century. And even then, the passage itself is sort of sectioned off, like you saw if you have one of the new international versions, it's bracketed, it's italicized, so that even those translators back in those days were not sure if this text should be included. Just to make matters even more difficult, some of the manuscripts don't actually have the passage where it currently is between chapter seven and eight. Some of them actually put it before chapter seven, around chapter seven, verse 36. And then to make it really complicated, some of the manuscripts don't have the passage in John at all. It's actually in Luke, around Luke chapter 21 or chapter 24. So from a translator or historian's perspective, this is just a complete and total mess. Does this passage actually exist in the earliest manuscripts? And the conclusion that many modern biblical scholars come to is that it was not in the original manuscript, that it was some added sometime later, somewhere between the eighth and the 10th century. And therefore, going back to our, one of our words, the passage is not considered canonical. In other words, it's not considered part of the original New Testament. And that creates a problem. Because if it's not a part of the original New Testament, but was added later, should we consider it a written word from God? And should it be revered and studied like the rest of scripture? I have a pastor friend here and he knows full well that at what I just finished saying, if we were in some other churches we've been in, he's nodding his head. This is where the deacons come forward, grab me, pull me off the, the stage. Kenny would be publicly rebuked at this point and there would be a vote being taken place on kicking me out. Because I just basically said, there's a text of scripture that shouldn't be there. That's just bad. I said before that I, did, that I have a tendency to walk on thin ice. Believe it or not, I'm not even near the thin ice just yet. So to solve the, the conundrum I presented, we have to address our second main question. 
Is the story, excuse me, is the story authentic? Did this encounter between Jesus, the Pharisees, and the woman actually happen? Well, surprisingly, most biblical scholars hold that yes, the story is authentic, that this event did actually happen. We have evidence that as early as the third century, the story was being passed around throughout the church. It was being talked about, it was being taught on. Um, we have a work called the Syriac Didascalia. Did I get that right? Thank you. It's great having Travis here. Um, and in that work, which is written around the third century, the writer admonishes bishops to treat repentant sinners, and I quote, as he also did with her who has sinned, who the elders set before him and leaving the judgment in his hands departed. So we know that the story was talked about, preached about in the early church. The story itself is consistent with the character and actions of Jesus as we see in the gospels and in the New Testament. It's just so the stories don't think that we just, it was not part of the scriptures that the early church used. So if it's authentic but not canonical, then the question that we need to ask is why was it added later? Or maybe a version of that question, why was it not originally part of scripture and then added later? Because if you recall, that's one of the key questions we keep asking in this series. Why were these stories written down in the first place? And there are a lot of theories from a lot of scholars as to why this passage was originally not included and then later put in. This is the point where I start walking the thin ice. Because I'm going to present one of these theories. I'm not certain it's the right or correct one, but I think this theory touches on some things that I think are relevant for us in 21st century American Christendom. So the theory goes like this. The passage was not originally included because Jesus' forgiveness of the adulterous woman was so against the early church's efforts against sin, especially sin within the church, that it was felt that Christians would take too lax a position on sin if the story was included. One of the commentaries I consulted in working on this, um, this teaching today is the word biblical commentary on the Gospel of John written by George R. Beasley Murray. And he states the problem like this. There is no reason to doubt its substantial truth, referring to the passage. The saying that it preserves is completely in character with what we know of our Lord and quite out of character with the stern discipline that came to be established in the developing church. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, tells of the fear of some believers that the story would give their wives encouragement to sin with impunity. And this led him to believe that this was the reason for its removal from the gospel. So this theory suggests that the early church was genuinely scared that people would read the story and think, oh, I can go out and do whatever I want. I can go and sin because Jesus will forgive me. After all, he forgave the woman. So with that in the back of our minds, let's take an actual look at the passage itself. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when, he, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, it's the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes claim that the woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, according to the Mosaic law, the law that the Pharisees and the scribes say that they follow, in order for a crime to be where you'd be charged with a crime, particularly one of like adultery, you had to have at least two witnesses to the crime. And when I say witnesses, I mean that you had to have at least two people who actually saw the woman and the man actually having sex before they could actually charge her. Now, do you see the problem here? In order for them to charge her, you had to have two people available at the exact time and place where the sex act is happening and be in a place where they can actually watch this happening. If you're like me, this sounds like a setup. And we have reason to suspect that it's a setup, not just because of the circumstances, but because of the missing element in this story. Where's the guy? We have the adulteress. Where's the adulterer? Don't, don't overlook that. It's an important detail. And it's important because the Mosaic law mentions, states very clearly in Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So again, where's the guy? He's nowhere to be found. He seems to have slipped away. To be honest, this scenario is just another attempt to trap Jesus. And to trap him, it seems to be in two different ways. One is regarding the Mosaic law. If Jesus declares the woman innocent of, her, of adultery, then he's putting aside the very law he has proclaimed that he has come not to destroy or to get rid of, but to fulfill. On the other hand, if he finds her guilty, he contradicts himself about his teachings on grace and forgiveness of sin. So that's one way they're looking to trap him. But there's another way, and that has to do with the Romans. Now, Rome rules Palestine at this time. And when Rome conquered Palestine, they removed from the Jewish authorities the right of capital punishment. So the Jews did not actually legally have the right to execute anyone. So if Jesus, again, argues for the woman's death, he puts himself in conflict with the Romans, who generally don't like people conflicting with them. On the other hand, if he claims the woman innocent, then the Pharisees and the scribes can actually claim that Jesus is sympathizing with their Roman conquerors. To quote the famous Star Wars character, Admiral Atbark, it's a trap. <laughs> Jesus 
is notorious for getting out of traps. And he gets out of this one through one of the most famous sayings he has ever given. And it's quoting from the scriptures now. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, I don't believe Jesus is arguing that you have to be sinless before you can judge someone for their sin. But I do believe Jesus is giving us a warning that he's repeated a number of times throughout his ministry. And that warning is judging others is a task best left to God. We see this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, where Jesus states, do not judge or you will be judged. We see it in the previous chapter of John, chapter 7, where the Pharisees are taking Jesus to task for healing on the Sabbath, and he reminds them that correct judgment does not depend solely on appearances. I'm on thin ice now, and this is where the ice starts to break. If you're going to spend your time looking for sinners and bringing them before God for judgment, you need to, be care you need to have two things. One, that you're authorized by God to do it, and two, that your own life measures up. I stated earlier that the only way these men could have been, had caught the woman in the act of adultery was if they had deliberately set the situation up. I think we can all agree that setting traps solely to catch people in sin is not the way to approach judgment. But how different is that from proclaiming adultery as a sin and yet practicing it in your own life? Or to condemn a rich person about their greed and their love of money, and yet you keep your own checking account closed to the needs of those in your community? How many of us, even when we have a biblical reason for doing so, are truly qualified to judge our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, much less the world? As you ponder that statement, ponder this. It's only the woman who is brought before Jesus, and it's the crime of adultery of which she is accused. There are numerous crimes given in Jewish law that they could have tried to trap Jesus with. They've tried with theft, they tried with breaking the Sabbath, they've even tried blasphemy. But in this case, they brought, on, brought before Jesus a woman called in a sexual sin. Now, I'm about to say something that's going to get me in trouble. Simply mentioning the word sex in a lot of evangelical communities is akin to saying the word shit, given how people react. And I've seen people react when you bring up the sex word. And throughout history, unfortunately, religious communities have been quick both to judge and punish women who have violated rules regarding sexual sins, such as premarital sex, such as adultery, abortion, divorce. But furthermore, in many of these communities, it is solely the woman who is at fault. The guy, his behavior, his actions are quickly and easily dismissed. Have you ever heard someone say, oh, he's just sowing his wild oats, or he's just being a guy? I won't say where this happened. Uh, this was many years ago, but I was in a church listening to a pastor preach. There's no, no one here, so don't worry about it. Um, but he said that morning that women who wear skimpy clothing were solely responsible for the sexual and lustful thoughts that go through a guy's mind. 
I want to be able to say I walked out. I don't remember if I did or not. But I remember being very angry at the statement because what went through my mind almost immediately was when did it become Christian to blame a person's thoughts on someone else's actions? When it become, when it, as a guy, a male, did it stop being my responsibility for what goes through my head? Because that's essentially what this pastor was saying. It was no longer my responsibility. I've fallen through the ice at this point. I'm drowning, I'm freezing. So I might as well just, just die at this point. Um, I said at the beginning that the theory I was presenting about why the story was not in the scriptures was because it seems to be too forgiving, too lenient. Because at the end, that's what Jesus does. He forgives the woman. He doesn't condone her actions, but he does forgive her. There's no penance. There's no time in jail. There's not even separation from the community. She's completely and totally forgiven. Because that's what God's forgiveness is. It's total. It's complete. It's without conditions. However, forgiveness also involves a turning response on our part. And therefore, we see Jesus' ending statement to the woman to go and sin no more. To not continue in her sin. For when we accept Jesus' forgiveness, we have to turn to him. And turning to him demands that we begin a new life empowered and filled with his spirit. Now, some of you are aware that I used to be a Southern Baptist. Sorry, Dennis. Um, uh, I've attended Southern Baptist churches all my life. I grew up in the Southern Baptist church. I went to seminary at a Southern Baptist um, seminary, um, got my degree there. So I've been involved in Southern Baptist life for as long as I can remember. The Southern Baptists have, they call it a statement of faith. It's a, it's a creed. Don't look at me like that, Dennis. It's a creed. They call it the Baptist faith and message. And this statement of faith or creed, or whatever we want to call it, has various sections that lay out the beliefs of Southern Baptists. There's a section on salvation. There's a section on baptism. There's a section on the Sabbath. There's a section on education, even. I never understood that one. But anyway, there's also a section on scripture. And basically, these sections spell out how Southern Baptists believe about these particular topics. And usually, this, this document has existed almost over 100 years. And it's usually not messed around with. But in the year 2000, the Southern Baptist Convention decided to radically alter the document. They added a number of sections. I think they put in the section of family, if I recall correctly. And on other sections, various, they rewrote much of it. Now, I'll be honest. When I saw a lot of these changes, it played a role in my eventually, not immediately, but eventually leaving the convention. Because the one I really had a problem with was what they did with the section on scripture. Ironically, that was probably the one that they touched the least because all they did, and we don't have the time, I would go through it, but we don't have the time. All they did was they took out one sentence. It was the very last sentence in, the, in that section and they decided to take it out. And it seems just very ordinary. What they deleted was this statement. And I hope I pronounced it right. The criterion, or criteria, I'm just going with that, by which the Bible is to be interpreted 
is Jesus Christ. Now, supposedly, they took this statement out because they be various factions within the denomination became concerned that Jesus' spoken words in Scripture were starting to be elevated over other New Testament passages. Supposedly, that's the, one of the main reasons. I don't know if, I, if that is really what was going on. I will say this, though. My problem with taking that statement out is that you remove the person under whom scripture resides. Now hear me carefully. If you know me, if you've been around me long enough, you will hear me say this over and over again. Scripture is not God. The Bible is not God. It's divinely inspired by God, but it is not God. Jesus, according to John 1.1, is our word. He is our scripture. What makes scripture divinely inspired is Jesus himself, and it is through Jesus that scripture must always be interpreted in the lives of Christ, of Christ followers. And that brings me back to where we started today, about, the, about whether or not John 8, 1 through 11 should be in scripture or not. To me, what makes this story worthy of our time to read it, to study it, to learn from it, regardless of whether or not it was originally in the original manuscripts or not, is that the story does with all, what all of scripture does. It reveals to us Jesus. It reveals to us his character and how he treats people. It reveals to us his divinity and exercising his right and power to forgive sin. And it reveals to us his love for those who feel ashamed and unlovable because of their actions. And for me, that is why John 8, 1 through 11 needs to stay in scripture because it reminds us of who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he is still doing to this day, forgiving and bringing to new life those who desire to follow him. And if you come away with anything that I was to talk about today, come away with that, that Jesus is who we are all about. For those who are, always, who are already Christ followers here today, he's our example, he's our life, he's our teacher, he's our God. If you're not a Christ follower, you're thinking about this whole Christ, this whole Christianity thing, wondering why I, why I even consider it, let me tell you something. It's not about a religion. It's not about doing good things. It's not about being right. It's not even about judging people. It is always about him. It is about Jesus, the one who came to give us new life and a new beginning. And ultimately, that's the real purpose of all the stories we've been talking about this summer that they reveal to us Jesus, the one who is always saving, always forgiving, and always renewing.